Good afternoon and very warm welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is uh, Marian Tupi and I'm the assistant director of the project on global economic liberty here at the Institute. Uh, thank you very much to all of you for coming and uh, I'm especially pleased to have our two speakers here today. Much has been said about Africa recently, especially during the course of last year, and for good reason. While the rest of the world had grown richer over the past few decades, Africa has actually grown poorer. Colombia professor Xavier Salai Martin found in a recent study that between 1974 and uh, 2003, African GDP per capita had shrunk by 11%. So the question then becomes, what is to be done? And uh, a lot of people have suggested that one possible solution to African poverty is massive increase in foreign aid. Jeffrey Sachs of Columbia University, for example, argues that foreign aid can work. He is proposing $1.5 trillion over the next 10 years, which should be transferred to some of the world's poorest countries, most of them in Africa, in aid, which, in his uh, opinion, will then spur economic growth. His idea is based on the assumption that uh, Africans are so poor that they cannot generate capital savings and cannot then invest them in the economy, and this creates the so-called vicious circle of poverty. British economist Peter Bauer disagreed. Uh, during his lifetime, he argued that uh, capital is not a prerequisite for economic growth, but a byproduct of economic growth. He had uh, argued that uh, foreign aid can contribute to increasing corruption, that it, can, um, uh, that it does not lead to economic growth, and may in fact provide a disincentive for reform. Well, today we'll be looking at uh, the issue of corruption. How big is the problem of corruption in Africa? Bono, the Irish pop star, who was recently on a visit to the United States, said on Conan O'Brien, the people in the United States don't believe that aid is getting to the people that it is supposed to because of corruption and stuff like that. They don't want their tax dollars redecorating presidential palaces. We have covered that now. That's what he said. Transparency International disagrees. In its annual corruption perception index, it tracks down the level of corruption in Africa, or at least perception of the level of corruption in Africa, and what Transparency International found, that over the past five years, between 2000 and 2005, corruption perception in Africa has actually become worse. It declined on a scale from 1 to 10, from 3.24 to 2.78. To help us understand the problem of corruption in Africa and the intricate way in which it interacts with uh, foreign aid and also with economic development and bringing people in Africa out of poverty, I'm uh, very happy to welcome John Githongo. John Githongo is a senior member, uh, senior associate member at St. Anthony's College in Oxford, and he's also a member of Transparency International. Until last year, he was the, the permanent secretary in the office of the president of the Republic of Kenya in charge of governance and ethics. Mr. Githongo was asked to look into the pervasive corruption amongst uh, Kenya's public officials. 
but soon encountered opposition that forced him to relinquish his position as the permanent secretary and also to leave Kenya for Great Britain, where he published his now famous report on corruption in Kenya and indicted Kenya's vice president and three senior ministers in a corruption scandal that cost Kenyan taxpayers hundreds of millions of dollars. Githongo, as I mentioned already, has previously worked for Transparency International as a director of its global board and also as, as executive director of Transparency International Kenya. Before that, he had an extensive uh, journalistic uh, career working for, uh, uh, for papers of such repute as uh, Financial Times and The Economist. And I am very happy to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Marian. I had titled my uh, presentation here today, Kenya Towards Political Accountability in the Fight Against Corruption. I would like to start my brief presentation today by thanking the Cato Institute for inviting me here to make this presentation. I shall focus primarily on the fight against corruption its political context in Kenya, and naturally what I have to say shall be drawn from my own experience, both when I served within Transparency International and as a journalist, and subsequently in the government of Kenya until my resignation on the 7th of February 2005. Did you talk a little closer to the mic? Okay. Okay, I think that's is it better? Is that, is that better? Much better. All right. In December 2003, the National Rainbow Coalition was swept to power after 24 years of a stifling autocratic regime that had ceded democratic space with reluctance and in bad faith, which had gone to every length to confuse, bribe, intimidate, and at times injure or eliminate the forces of change in the 1990s. One of the most important developments as a result of the peaceful transition at the end of 2002 was the entrenchment and, the five and, the f and further widening of the democratic space that had been fought for and won bitterly over the past decades. Kenyans had not so much voted for this or that party. In 2002, they voted simply for change, a change in the way they were governed and towards a more accountable and transparent government. They were tired of the old order and wanted something new, something better. They were excited too that, that at the last moment, the last minute, the opposition had finally united. This hunger for change was not a uniquely Kenyan phenomenon. I should like to argue that across the African continent, simple, similar expectations of change had and were coalescing and continue to do so. Within months of the election, their administration had embarked on an ambitious governance-related reform program that included, among other measures, for example, the creation of a Ministry of Justice and Constitutional Affairs, my own appointment as Permanent Secretary in Charge of Governance and Ethics, 
the appointment of a new director of public prosecutions who, for example, set about creating a special unit to address corruption, serious crime, fraud, and asset forfeiture. The Anti-Corruption and Economic Crimes Act 2003 was signed into law by the President on the 2nd of May 2003, and the process of institutionalizing the resultant Kenya Anti-Corruption Commission as the premier anti-corruption agency proceeded apace and was completed towards the end of 2004. The government also established the Kenya National Human Rights Commission, created a specialized cabinet committee on corruption, institutionalized the declaration of assets and liabilities by public officials after passing the Public Officer Ethics Act in 2003. In addition to this, the Goldenberg Commission of Inquiry was established to get to the bottom of the Goldenberg scandal of the early 1990s that saw the misappropriation of perhaps up to one million US dollars. The Commission on on Illegal and Irregular Allocation of Public Land and the National Anti-Corruption Campaign and the Task Force on Truth, Justice and Conciliation were also established to collect and collate views of the public as to whether a Truth Commission should be set up. There was also a dramatic reform of the judiciary that saw 50% of of the top judges removed from office. All these reforms, and I think this is uh, an important point, all these reforms were initiated within the first nine months of the administration. It is my view that the rapture within NARC over the constitutional review process, and in particular the inability to mutually agree on the post of a prime minister, and by implication on presidential powers, precipitated something akin to a counter-revolution within the ruling coalition. Virtually overnight, NARC became dysfunctional with the so-called LDP faction pitted against the NAK wing. The constitutional reform process in 2003, culminating in the referendum that took place in November last year, became an arena in which the internal contradictions within the coalition were played out. These contradictions within the coalition could have been anticipated, but it was clear that coalitions had become the organizing reality behind our new politics. In the immediate aftermath of the end of the single-party state in 1991, the opposition splintered essentially along ethnic lines with individual parties drawing support from particular areas inhabited, inhabited predominantly by specific ethnic groups that were mobilized along tribal lines by individual leaders on the basis of their past, present, and future promise of delivering past patronage. It was just such a splintering of the political elite, encouraged enthusiastically by the, by the then ruling party, that characterized politics between 1992 <coughs> and 2002, when the opposition, as I mentioned before, united rapidly behind Mwai Kibaki under the, nation, under the National Rainbow Coalition banner to push Kanu out of power. As the contradictions within the coalition were played out, we found on the one side a group of leaders committed to the idea of NARC as one political party. Of this, they made what sounded like a reasonable argument, that the election had been contested by NARC as a party and not by its constituent parties individually. This argument was put forward to justify the need to consolidate the new ruling party 
into a single powerful political machine uniting all its constituent elements. In truth, in the view of others, it had been contested by a coalition that had only conveniently come under the party banner of NAC to remove Kanu from power. In my opinion, the older centralizing group of leaders harked back to an order of the 1960s and 1970s. When the Kenyan economy grew, under what can be described as the authoritarian benevolence of the Kenyatta regime during the Cold War, an order based on an implicit, albeit ultimately self-destructive idea that the Kikuyu and their associated communities were possessed of, both by mistake of history and natural character or both, the capacities necessary to get the economy moving again after a period of prolonged incompetence, looting, and resultant stagnation. This implicit organizing idea within key members of the ruling elite was manifest in a host of ways, mainly with regard, for example, to early appointments of senior public officials, including, including here, I should add, myself. But more destructively, in my opinion, to the apparent arrogance demonstrated implicitly and explicitly by, by those who held this view, a view that said, albeit, as I said, implicitly, that we, Kikuyu, could produce the growth and be allowed some excesses in gratitude. It was, I should like to argue, a model that had been reasonably successful during the Cold War and had only started to falter in the mid-1980s as the Moi regime consolidated and the economy was restructured. Anyway, by the middle of 2004, it began to look as if the heart of the state was dominated by cold warriors, grappling with new realities whose vision of the political ideal was the 1970s, backwards, not to the future. But the Cold War had ended Society had urbanized rapidly, both in, in real physical terms and in terms of even rural, rural youth acquiring urgent 21st century aspirations driven by television, radio, the internet, and mobile phones. This younger generation, who now form a majority of Kenyans, do not even remember Mzee Jomo Kenyatta except what they read about him. In the cities, they speak their own language, Sheng. They are more irrelevant, irrelevant, irrelevant of their leaders than their parents were. They are better schooled and more exposed to the wider world than any generation preceding them. There are both negative and positive effects to these developments, but they are inescapable realities. Realities that saw many of Africa's relationship with the outside, relationships with the outside world transformed more, nebus, more nebulously by the information age and more practically these days by, via mechanisms such as NEPAD and the like. In a similar vein, the relevance of the development partners has, has ironically declined since the end of the Cold War in a country like Kenya, in part because they, dis they disengaged in the 19 1980s and 1990s from the most direct support to the corrupt central government in favor of support to civil society because of improved tax collection leading to reduced reliance on injections of donor aid 
as well an environment of political correctness that shirks from any imperialist overtones implied in the conditionality-related methods of engaging on the development assistance front, and importantly, the decline in the capacity of states to absorb aid, and in my opinion, more importantly, the fact that the, that the, that the 1990s had unleashed freedoms and creativities amongst a population that had changed its very view of itself creating a more confident urbanite in particular, who while knowledgeable of his or her disadvantages in Africa, is also clear about his or her equalities and similarities with peers across the world, especially when it comes to access to information. Thus creating a new uniformity of expectations amongst the youth that can quickly become a crisis for an administration that is not sensitive to them. So I should like to think that while foreign aid so I should like to think that foreign aid, while not being less important, especially for those countries that receive large chunks of budgetary support, and more, and more critically, well-timed infusions of emergency relief to mitigate natural and unnatural disasters, while not being less important, it might be less relevant in the minds and hearts of an entire generation of young Africans whose outlook is more global in a manner that is unprecedented in history. Throughout the 1980s and 1990s, Africa was the world's most helplessly globalized continent. We adopted structural adjustment, economic liberalization policies, perhaps when our elites hadn't thought them through and when our economies had not been prepared to face the full force of the global economy. The information age happened upon us when there are those who would argue that our own institutions of cultural dissemination were their weakness, weakest after the back at backwardness of the 1980s in particular in terms of its impact on the intellectual class as a result of their persecution across the continent. I should like to argue, however, that successful elections in a country like Kenya, at which the electorate clearly articulate their wishes sometimes in dramatic ways, would point to a deepening of the democratic process that is reassuring in the long term. I shall come back to uh, the internal Kenyan politics and, and corruption. By the, second, by the end of 2003 in Kenya, the unfortunate myth of the so-called Mount Kenya Mafia had become a powerful and quietly resented reality. The idea of a small group of people from one ethnic grouping dominating all key decisions of state. At the same time, the idea of a monolithic single party called NARC, driven by this group, was resisted by all its larger constituent parties who argued that their membership of NARC was corporate as opposed to individual. By this time, the coalition's instruments that could conceivably have been used to iron out some of these contradictions, such as the summit, had atrophied. There's a sense in which the anti-corruption battle was distracted, was distracted by the power struggle within the coalition. From this moment onwards, the end of, uh, end of 2003, the two factions within NAC, the NAK and LDP factions, were preoccupied with containing each other. I believe two fundamental choices facing the administration when confronted with these internal contradictions became apparent. One was to continue aggressively down the reform path politically 
with the same zeal as the reform agenda had been started had started to be implemented on the bureaucratic institutional and legislative fronts party reform would have been key via consolidation consolidating coalition structures and secondly successful constitutional reform was together with this party reform the only vehicles for this kind of change but those who controlled the vital levers of power were unable or unwilling to conceive of a more diffused power structure that would see what was politically understood to be a watering down of presidential powers. The second fundamental choice facing the administration or the key leaders in the administration was to revert to type, consolidate power in the hands of a small elite and hold on to it by a healthy mixture of some real reforms, public relations, dubiously financed political patronage, and reverting to a monolithic party structure and the like. The second option was the more familiar and perhaps the easier. I believe that the setbacks in the fight against corruption were derived perhaps from making this choice. In other words, as an administration, we wanted to implement the legislative, bureaucratic, and sometimes even institutional reforms necessary to move forward, but at the same time, a far more conservative instinct had kicked in politically. This attempt to be all things to all people brought us to grief on the anti-corruption front. I shall not go into all the details, but only to illustrate the heart of what can be described as grand corruption within the NARC state is a series of financial arrangements that combined together comprise a system of conducting security-related procurement, procuring commercial debt, and financing politics, ostensibly financing politics. The financing of politics is the most often repeated excuse for the very transactions that now form the bulk of the investigations being carried out by the Kenya Anti-Corruption Authority. Um, I'm limited here slightly by the fact that I've given evidence before the Public Accounts Committee of the Kenyan Parliament, and their report is due to be presented to Parliament hopefully this week. But um, I'll give you perhaps a snapshot uh, of the way these transactions worked uh, and transactions which were, as I said, given political justification. At the beginning of, in March of 2004, it became, well, I was informed that an entity had been granted a contract worth about 32 million euro. I'm not sure how much that is in dollars. That's a lot of money in Kenya. I was also informed that this entity that had been granted this contract did not exist. It was, un it was un unusual, um, to say the least. Um, if, uh, at that time, my main concern was reputational. I was worried that this would cause a reputational problem for us. Uh, therefore should be stopped and I was under the impression that it had been stopped if you're entering into a contract with an entity that doesn't exist um, surely that should not proceed um, however um, uh, 
about over a month later, uh, around the 21st of April 2004, the issue was raised in Parliament. So it seemed that indeed our administration had gone ahead to sign this uh, this particular contract. And on the 22nd of April, the following day, uh, with the support and approval of His Excellency the President, an investigation was embarked upon by the Kenya Anti-Corruption Authority. The investigation proceeded, um, and it's a fairly uh, uh, bizarre investigation where you are investigating an entity that you have established does not exist, but which has been granted a contract. Um, and um, and as things proceeded on or around, I think, the 17th of May, 2004, um, this entity paid back, I think, about 956,000 euro that had been paid to it as a commitment fee by the Kenya government. We proceeded to discover that there were several other such little entities. Um, and when inquiries were started into them, more refunds came. In, in to total, by the end of the first week of August, uh, I think about $12 million had been returned to, to, to the Kenya government by, by these uh, entities. By this time, um, the message was clear that, um, in actual fact, um, some of these resources, some of these transactions were, uh, were conducted by us within the administration and the, the justification that was used was that this was required for political finance uh, I shall jump there I, I believe that the, the Public Accounts Committee will be tabling its report to Parliament quite soon uh, I trust I'm pretty sure, Kenya being Kenya that it will be online within hours of it being presented uh, to, to, uh, to Parliament uh, on various non-parliamentary websites, I'm sure. But um, so I, sh I, I shan't go into all the details um, that are there. Uh, I should like to think that um, they will throw even they will shed even more light than has thus far been shed into these matters. Uh, this, what I have described to to you, was simply a snapshot uh, of one little matter. Um, that comprised a system, a way of doing things, a way of managing politics. And that's where the fundamental contradiction came for me. It was not only a, co a corruption uh, issue to be investigated by a group of policemen and then people arrested and taken to court. It was shaking the entire uh, political system. Uh, you know, one of the results is that I'm here and not in Nairobi. Um, Some of the le lessons learned, and here I I want to answer the questions of my own colleagues in government, whose justification was that we need this this money to to pay for politics. Uh, I, I was saying earlier how I'm slightly bemused that uh, in Britain. 
there seem to be difficulties being caused over relatively small amounts of money, the Kenyan context, a few million pounds. Um, uh, it's nothing compared to the amount of resources mobilized for ostensibly for, Kenyan, for, for politics in a country like Kenya. The truth of the matter is, is, is the following, however, which is something that I find to be a positive uh, about the uh, politics that's developed in Kenya. And that is that, first of all, vote buying no longer seems to work. If it did, as we saw in, in 2002, the ruling party, Kanu, that had more of the money, lost. In, two, in 2005, during the referendum on the constitution that was held in November last year, uh, what can be described as the, the ruling elite lost the referendum, despite being, and by their own admission, endowed with enough resources to shake the country. So there's a sense in which Kenyan democracy has reached a new level. Uh, and my own experience has been that offered cash, T-shirts, food, uh, especially in a time of drought like this, uh, Kenyans will, if you're a politician competing for office, they will line up and take your money. They will line up and take your T-shirts, your maize, whatever you're giving them, but they will vote with their consciences. So it's a, a step forward and a lesson for politicians that vote buying on a mass scale, which has been used as a justification for scandals like Goldenberg, no longer works. I think our democracy has moved beyond that. What my experience has been is that the insidious effects of religiously acquired resources is felt most when dispersed within small groups of mainly urban-based, closeted decision-makers. Small groups of members of parliament, uh, constitutional making group, small groups of people, a uh, million dollars here and there can change uh, decisions. But uh, spending a hundred million dollars can no longer buy you an election in Kenya. Uh, thirdly, uh, on the voter level, the urban areas seem to remain most resistant to patronage politics and skeptical of the promises that leaders make uh, for, of, future, of future patronage. I'll go back again to the political context uh, in the fight against corruption and what, what happened as some of these contradictions were now being uh, played out and the effect they had on the fight against corruption. In June 2004, a cabinet reshuffle saw the inclusion into the cabinet of opposition legislators. In my opinion, the reshuffle was a reactionary turn in government, and it was meant in, turn to, in part to marginalize the troublesome LDP faction. And in a sense, it can be argued that it did, it watered them down. But it also signaled a slowing down of the reform agenda in Kenya. The second effort to lend coherence to the increasingly fractious administration was via the referendum on the constitution that was conducted in November last year. As a result, what was supposed to be a referendum on the constitution became a contest between two <coughs> political groupings within the same cabinet. One that supported the constitution and was allocated a banana symbol by the Electoral Commission of Kenya, and their opponents who are allocated the orange symbol. 
The Oranges promptly formed a movement that traversed the country, campaigning against the new constitution, mainly on grounds that the excessive powers of the presidency had been left intact in the new draft amongst a raft of other contentious issues. It is usually easier to campaign against than for something in these sorts of cases. As the banana and orange campaigns progressed, they deteriorated into crude ethnic mobilization that ultimately had untoward results for the most for its most enthusiastic proponents. At the end of the day, in Kenya, fear of domination by the largest ethnic group, Kuyus in particular, given Kenya's history, is one of the most, if not the most potent tools of crude political mobilization available to Kenyan politicians who are not Kikuyu. And it no doubt had something to do with the final result that was a resounding loss for the banana camp in the hands of the oranges. That a sitting government could lose a referendum despite its access to resources was not to, was not to me entirely surprising. What was surprising was that the banana leaders were stunned by the defeat and its scale. This signaled what was perhaps a more fundamental disconnect, one so vast that it is not unlikely that Kenya was entering a phase of unprecedented events driven by executive actions based on limited information and indecisiveness. I think some of you may have been reading stories about raids into the media, which I'll talk about later, mercenaries and or so-called mercenaries and other bizarre happenings. The, the referendum allowed one immediate political objective, objective to be achieved immediately thereafter, the sacking of the entire cabinet, and its replacement eventually with essentially the same old faces minus the rebel-aligned ministers who were dropped. The process of making the cabinet appointments was also fraught with unprecedented difficulties, with several ministers initially refusing to take their positions and negotiating with a politically weakened executive for a bigger slice of the cake along ethnic lines. At the end of the day, the referendum became a vote of confidence in the elite at the core of the administration. It was more about corruption than the constitution, more about, the con more about concerns regarding ethnic domination than a new citizenship, more about broken promises than undeniable economic achievements, more about jobs not provided than tax collected. And ultimately, it was about the perceived failure to deliver in good faith a more equitable constitution itself. I would insist that the surprise was not that, was not that the banana side lost in the referendum, despite being, quote-unquote, better endowed resource-wise by their own admission, but that they were surprised they lost. As noted before, one of the most important developments as a result of the peaceful transition at the end of 2002 was an entrenchment and a further widening of democratic space that had been fought for and won bitterly over the last decade, over the, previous, over the previous decade in particular. Indeed, the already sophisticated media and civil society sectors in Kenya became even became bolder than ever, in, in part because, th because those who were now in government were former oppositionists, which meant the press now had unprecedented access to the higher echelons of government. We were all old friends, previously united against Kanu. Ministers and civil servants were regularly seen on television, granting interviews, even attending radio talk shows and the like. Within government, I should like to argue, was the most fundamental change. 
in that the breath of fresh air had an even more dramatic impact. Civil servants who had been previously afraid to speak up about maladministration and perceived abuses or even corruption now complained, often in writing, to their ministers, to civil society, and sometimes even to the media. Indeed, despite all the difficulties, until the beginning of this month, the most impressive achievement of the NARC administration, according to its own spokesman, was the freeing up of the democratic space that allowed the media to speak so forcefully about corruption and other ills. <laughs> but as I mentioned earlier, Kenya is under undergoing un some unprecedented times, which are in turn leading to unprecedented actions on the part of, of the government as it struggles to keep up with an increasingly informed electorate that has high expectations and the confidence to express them. The police raid against the Standard Newspaper and the Kenya Television Network on the morning of the 2nd of March was another in an extremely bizarre sequence of developments. It was bizarre in that it did not seem possible that there was anything more damaging to the government's own much-vaunted reputation for openness that it could conceivably have done to itself. It marked an unprecedented low in what has often been a sometimes tumultuous relationship with the media that supported key elements of the government when they were in opposition. The dramatic deterioration of this relationship is likely to have severe implications in the short term, and we are already seeing that. It's not only that it happened, but how it was executed. Balaclava-clad policemen bursting into the premises of a major newspaper group, harassing and intimidating journalists, disabling equipment, and generally causing a scene and making a total meal of it. The manner of the raid seemed more for show than effect. Indeed, thus far, the only effect would appear to have been to, would appear to have been to embolden the media and cause a further loss of confidence in the administration's democratic credentials, both locally and internationally, despite being led by a president whose reputation for political tolerance, compared to his predecessors, remains unchallenged. It can be argued that it was the most significant setback to the freedom of the press in Kenya for a long time. It is critical because the media in Kenya is especially important in the wider democratic system. Well institutionalized, sophisticated, commercially independent, and possessed of a clear idea of its own importance and role as a key pillar in Kenya's democratic development, their success has been the nation's success. Indeed, until recently, the media was the main vehicle for political accountability on the part of government officials. Ironically, after a painful process of attempting to forge a cohesive government, the raid against the media last week provoked some splits within the cabinet. In truth, however, the most interesting thing about the attack was while provoking widespread understandable outrage, both locally and internationally, even leading to demonstrations in the streets in Kenya, it has not caused a fundamental loss of faith on the part of Kenyans in Kenya. Speaking to ordinary Kenyans, these setbacks, bizarre and outrageous as though they are, seem thus far to be well absorbed by an increasingly mature and sophisticated body politic whose unspoken response is, see you at the next elections. Indeed, people realize that there is an extent to which this developing trend of intolerant behavior on the part of the administration is merely symptomatic of the internal contradictions within what used to be called the coalition government 
and is now called a government of national unity. As I have said, despite the setbacks and bizarre developments of which I believe there shall be more on the political front in the coming months, two important achievements have been made. First, in Kenya we are learning that public service means we serve the people and not an individual. That the public no longer accept the weary excuse of the past that one received orders from above to break the law or abuse public trust in any way. So a culture of political accountability may be beginning to take root. It will, I believe, in the coming months to lead to increasing calls for greater presidential accountability in Kenya, in particular which might be expressed within the constitutional reform process. This will be a positive development with implications across a continent where despite generally positive developments on, on the democratization front, ultimate political presidential accountability is something we're only starting to learn. Second, the setbacks on the, on the democratic front are not causing a generalized feeling of decline, despondency and failure. The maturing of democracy thus far seems able to absorb the shocks and Kenyans seem to pity the government as much as they are outraged by it. It causes them to laugh as much as it provokes their anger. Despite the threats, the threats, it does not seem, it does not, it has not been able to inculcate a generalized culture of fear, in, in part because it does not seem to have the coherence or competence to do so, even if it wanted to. At the end of the day, the fight against corruption will be defined by the politics. The politics, in turn, will increasingly be defined by whether the coalition politics means merely tribal chieftains sitting around a table and negotiating their share of the spoils, whether the outrage caused by the corruption of the new elite combined with, with the resort to increasingly repressive tactics will lead to the development of a new cross-cutting agenda for the future. Fortunately or unfortunately, since so much of the political class is tarred by the same brush, one would like to think that only the development of a clear alternative agenda for leadership will lend credibility to anyone seeking ultimate political power. In other words, an end to the game of political musical chairs. Even if war one at their most cynical, the kind of impunity that resulted in the current outrage seems unlikely to repeat itself on the corruption <coughs> front in the future, save by those who anticipate an, an extremely short political shelf life. I'll conclude with five, four of the most pressing contradictions and lessons um, that I have learned. Number one is that national security and the procurement, procure, procurement processes it derives have become the last refuge of, of the corrupt. Parliamentary oversight lacking in this critical area is lacking in this critical area but it's, it's, it's one uh, issue that is going to uh, keep on appearing uh, in countries ac across uh, the continent. The second important uh, question is who pays for democracy in Africa? 
How do we win an election without stealing the money or going to thieves for the campaign contributions? My own experience is that most of the resources secretly mobilized, ostensibly for campaigns, go into private hands, and only about 20% end up going into quote-unquote politics. Third, how do we manage our politics and the new reali reality of coalitions? On the national level, level, by building real party structures, which is happening. On the regional level, by speeding, by speeding up political integration, which is the only way to resolve some of the internal national contradictions in some countries. Some of the answers to some of the problems we see, I believe, even in Rwanda and Burundi, uh, I think will only ultimately be answered when they are part of a larger East African grouping with free movement of people and goods and services. And uh, some of these internal contradictions uh, will uh, reduce. <coughs> Finally, and most importantly in the fight against corruption, has been my now convinced opinion that restitution is more important than prosecution in the fight against corruption. And even with regard, especially with regard to some of the scandals facing Kenya uh, today, my experience has been corrupt people want to go to court. The quicker they can get to court, the better, because I can keep you in court for 10 years. And they have, their lawyers are better paid than the government's lawyers. So restitution measures that take the money away from, from them, that freeze their assets, block their accounts, is, is uh, a lot more important. I had a number of other things to say, but I'm sure they'll, uh, there'll be questions that will give me the opportunity to, to answer them. So I thank you once again for listening to me, and thank the Cato Institute for inviting me. Thank you very much. Uh, to respond to John's talk, we have uh, George Aita, Professor George Aita. is a distinguished economist at uh, American University and president of Free Africa Foundation, both uh, in Washington, D.C. He obtained Bachelor of, Ar uh, Bachelor of Science in Economics at the University of Ghana, then Master's at the University of Western Ontario, um, and uh, Ph.D. from the University of Manitoba. He became a National Fellow at the Hoover Institution uh, Stanford University. He was a Bradley Scholar at the Heritage Foundation, um, and uh, in 1983 he started the above-mentioned Free Africa Foundation. He is an internationally recognized authority on Africa. He has authored three books on Africa, Africa Betrayed, Africa and Chaos, and uh, most recently, um, Africa Unchained, The Blueprint for Africa's Future. He has written for Wall Street Journal, Los Angeles Times. He has appeared on many talk shows and uh, has testified before many U.S. congressional committees. He has just returned from Ghana, where his uh, many efforts have been rewarded by making him a traditional chief in one of the vill village, an honor of which comes with uh, the right of having three wives, I believe. So uh, <laughs> maybe, you, maybe you can tell us uh, if any progress has been made. <laughs> First of all, uh, I'd like to uh, thank uh, Marion for the wonderful introduction, and also the Cato Institute for putting this uh, event together, and also uh, John uh, Gitongo. Um, he's one courageous man, and I'd like us to applaud him.
And the reason why I'm saying this is that it is not easy to expose corruption in Kenya and live. Because this is what happened to Robert Woku. You may remember him. And also, um, Mozambique, there was a journalist called uh, Carlos Cardoso, Cardoso uh, who was killed uh, because he's tried to expose corruption. And I can name you countless journalists and editors who've tried to uh, sort of uh, confront uh, this courage of corruption in Africa. Um, but see, there is, <clears throat> I mean, uh, when uh, John mentioned presidential accountability, you know, I was sitting in my chair and I was saying, yeah, yeah. But then I remembered that Charles Taylor escaped. <laughs> but they grabbed him. There's something fishy going on with this Charles Taylor saga. <laughs> the uh, Nigerian government authorities, remember this was a guy who uh, sort of uh, sowed chaos in the entire West African region. He looted Liberia's uh, national treasury. And uh, the Nigerian government said, well, he was trying to flee to, uh, he was caught near the border with uh, Cameroon. But then it was discovered that, you know, uh, Maiduguri, which is uh, the little town, was all the way up in the northern part of Nigeria. And the border there is with Chad or uh, Nigeria, not with Cameroon. And it, it's kind of strange that, you know, two days after Obasan just says, you know, he was going to hand him over, and the guy slips away. And then just before he arrives in the U.S., you know, with a meeting, with, uh, he pops up, you know, and uh, they've grabbed him. But anyway... Um, <laughs> we want to end this culture of looting with impunity in Africa. Corruption is not, it's, corruption is a huge problem in Africa. Uh, let me give you some statistics. The African Union, last August, estimated that corruption alone cost Africa $148 billion a year. Corruption alone. Now, I confronted Jeffrey Sachs with this. And I asked him, you want to give Africa more aid. Now, don't you think that the aid that Africa needs can be found in Africa itself if these governments were serious enough to cut down on corruption? I mean, if they were serious and cut down on corruption, just half of it. They'll find more aid, more resources than, you know, Tony Blair and the Jeffrey Sachs wants to give them. How serious are they? They aren't very serious. Every year, 80 billion in capital leaves Africa. Where does it go? Switzerland. It's invested outside. And yet these are the same governments which draw up elaborate investment code to try and attract foreign investors to come to Africa. It defies common sense. Because look, if Nigerians themselves wouldn't invest in their own country, why should foreigners? <laughs> and what did Nigeria do with the more than 415 billion in oil revenue that flowed into Nigeria? What happened to it? And Nigeria's own president, Obasanjo, claimed that since 1990, uh, since 1960, African leaders have stolen more than 140 billion from their people. 
African leaders have stolen more than 140 billion from their people. That should tell you why Africa is too poor. The reason why Africa is poor, it's not, you, know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist. Africa has the resources. Name the mineral, you find it in Africa. The reason why Africa is poor is because Africa is a bad government. We're not saying don't help Africa, but what Africa needs is smart aid. See, there are some Americans who want to help Africa, but see, the, the, the foreign aid, the reason why, one reason why foreign aid failed was because it was based upon false premises. First false premise is that Americans don't make a distinction between the people and the leaders. They think very naively that the best way of helping Africa is by working with their forming partnership with their leaders. As a matter of fact, President Clinton epitomized this particular approach. You may remember back in 1998 when he made a historic trip to Africa. He was hailing the presidents of Ethiopia, Eritrea, Uganda, Rwanda, Congo as the new leaders of Africa. What happened? Barely two months before he returned to the U.S., Ethiopia and Eritrea were at war, and the so-called new leaders were fighting among themselves in the Congo. The second false premise Americans make is that they assume that there's something called government in, in Africa that they can deal with and that they can funnel aid through such a government and such, a, uh, such aid will reach the people. As John made clear, what you have in many African countries is a vampire state or the Mount, the Mount Kenya Mafia. Government doesn't exist. Government has been hijacked by assailants of bandits and crooks who use the instruments of state power to advance their own economic interests and exclude everybody else. It's all about power, political power. And what is that power useful? Three things. Power to loot, power to crush one's enemies, and power to perpetuate oneself in office. So you see this dreadful disease, the, the obsession with power in Africa. And once they get the power, they don't want to give it up. Nobody wants to relinquish the power. So they change constitutions to repeal term limits so that they can run again and again and again. And you can see that, you see, the destruction of any African country always, always, always begins with some this adamant refusal to relinquish political power. Now, in Africa, we've been fighting them. We've been struggling. That's the reason why Africa is always in chaos and turmoil. Because the African people want freedom. And they're fighting these dictators and despots. But you see, here's the irony. We struggle very hard and remove one rat from power. And then guess what? The next cockroach comes to do exactly the same thing. <laughs> we said we didn't like Moy. 
We toss them out, and guess what? The same thing in uh, Zambia. We said we didn't die, Kaunda. <coughs> what happened to Chiluba? <coughs> guess where they found this? Uh, Chiluba's uh, former uh, finance minister. They caught him hiding in a tree. Same thing in Ivory Coast. We said we didn't like Hufwe Boanye. And we brought Lauren Babu. <coughs> Excuse me. It's the same cycle of <coughs> repeated cycle of one betrayal after another. Look, to find corruption, to fight corruption, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You need three things, three institutions. The first one is you need, we need in Africa a free and independent media. Free and independent media. We don't have this in many African countries, and Americans take the media for granted. Out of the 54 African countries, only eight of them have a free media. Now, if you don't expose corruption, as a matter of fact, the first step in solving the problem is to expose it. And that's the job of the media. The Ethiopians have a proverb. It says, he who conceals his disease cannot expect to be killed. You can't fight corruption without exposing it. Only eight out of the 54 African countries have a free media to expose it. And those that try to, journalists that try to expose corruption come under siege and attack. And I'd like to commend the Kenyans. When the Eastern Standard came under siege, the public, civil society rallied to their defense. And this is what we must see in each African country. When editors and journalists are under siege by corrupt and repressive governments, all sections of civil society, the professors, the intellectuals, the students, should rally to the defense of those who are being victimized. Because, see, if you don't expose it, you're not going to get it corrected. Number two, the second institution that we need is a, a very aggressive attorney general or civil society to push for the prosecution of the corrupt. And the third institution that you need is the rule of law. Rule of law meaning that you need to have an independent judiciary. Now, uh, Kibaki started well with the judiciary in Kenya, sacking half of the uh, Kenyan judges. But that type of reform has stalled. Now, <clears throat> an independent judiciary, an independent free media, a vigilant civil society, civil society or um, an aggressive uh, uh, an, an aggressive attorney general. But then the ruling elites are not interested in reform. I mean, if you push them hard enough, you tell them that your government is too big and cut down on the government, spend less money, spend less government spending. And they will set up a ministry of less government spending. <laughs> Thank you very much. George is growing fiercer with age over the years that I've known him. I wonder how angry he'll be when he's 80. But um, let's open it to question and answers. 
I will ask you to please introduce yourselves. Wait till the microphone gets to you, then introduce yourself. And uh, please keep your questions very brief and in a form of a question. And uh, I shall be fierce in uh, uh, enforcing this rule. So uh, let's have a question from the gentleman over there. Yes. John, good to see you. I'm good that you're still alive. Uh, my name is uh, John Muller. I write a column for the East African Standard, among other things. And good to see you, George, too. Now, John, you claim that um, you yeah, believe... Well. John, you claim that um, you believe that eth ethnicity or the feeling of ethnicity is going down in, in, in Kenya. Hello? This way. Now, John, you, you claimed in your speech that you believe that there's a new generation coming up in countries like Kenya that are less inclined to ethnic feelings and inclinations. But I think the last referendum revealed something that is very, very fundamental and it's not easy to get rid of. And it's at the very basis of some of the corrupt practices that we have. And that is that ethnicity is in fact heightened over the years and not gone down. So as a matter of fact, the very people who you say are the victims of corruption are its abettors. They support corruption for as long as it benefits them or their people. What's your comment to that? Uh, I disagree uh, totally. And I think that that is not uh, borne out by uh, all... If you look at the kind of uh, uh, coalition that was built in Kenya at the last moment to remove Kanu from power, in 2002. What would you describe that as, uh, John? You come from Kenya, where you had uh, ethnic groups that were described as uh, diametrically opposed in Kenyan history coming together to vote for change. To vote for change. The kind of response we've had with regard to the kind of outrage with regard to corruption, with regard to attack uh, on, on the media. So I disagree. I think there is a, there's, a, there's a pessimistic, uh, cynical strain that says that uh, African politics is about tribes and what they can eat. And this cake that they are eating, they don't know who's cooking it, but it's a diminishing cake, and therefore they're willing to kill each other if, if need be. I believe that's changing. I'm not saying it's something that is happening uh, overnight. I'm not saying it's something that uh, uh, politicians are uh, necessarily savvy to, uh, but they're learning the, less, uh, the, lesson, the lessons the hard way. Number one, as I said, coalition politics is now a reality. Whether it starts with, you know, the moment we had the reintroduction of multi-party politics, the opposition split along ethnic lines, uh, now they're forced to work together to to, to win political power. The next stage is to build an agenda because people are going to say, what is, what is, why, why do you want to be elected? Is it simply because you have managed to bring this tribe and that tribe together so that you can win power? I think there's an exhaustion with that kind of uh, analysis. I, 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 th I think it's too easy for us to keep on slipping back and saying, well, you know, but you know, at the end of the day, this is about what uh, you know, this tribe and that tribe uh, uh, can eat. So I disagree. I, uh, the referendum saw a very ugly uh, 
uh, and crude uh, ethnic uh, mobilization. And uh, along with that, the, the, the manipulation of this uh, powerful resentment in our society in Kenya to, towards Kikuyu domination. And it, and it was used. But at the same time, and if you look at the statistics closely, look, look at the voting uh, uh, patterns during the referendum, especially in the urban areas and peri-urban areas, very, very clear that amongst the youth, across uh, ethnic lines, people were voting one way. So I, I don't think that uh, things are as black and white as you would like uh, to describe them. Maybe that's, that's just me. I also think that Africa is uh, urbanizing quickly, physically, and in, uh, and in mind. And I think those, those uh, movements are real. So I don't subscribe at all to that kind of uh, pessimistic kind of uh, analysis. Well, that's very hopeful. Uh, my goodness. Okay, uh, gentleman over there. Hello, uh, my name is Dan Ford uh, from the Heritage Foundation. And uh, <clears throat> I just wanted to know uh, if you have any political ambitions yourself. Okay, yeah. that's a short question, a very short answer. Question keeps on coming up. I don't know why. Uh, I've never spoken about it. I've never expressed any interest in it. <laughs> you know, uh, I think he, he, uh, our friend Mr. Mullah can tell us I have no constituency. There's no tribe. Can that, uh, even my, my, my fellow Kikuyus will not vote for me now. So, <laughs> so, so no, I think that uh, I, I started off as j journalist and in civil society. I'm back in civil society. Good. Uh, question from the back, maybe? So the answer is yes. Yes. <laughs> the lady. Hello, I'm Courtney Vaughan, and um, currently consultant with the World Bank, working in West Africa. And um, pretty much, I would love to hear the perspective of Professor Ayete, as well as um, Githongo, on um, what um, I'm thinking in my mind that um, accountability is not a one-way street. Neither is um, corruption, Professor. You mentioned that um, billions of dollars, pretty much, have been coming from Africa, right? And I'm assuming they're ending up in Western banks. I'm a, current, I'm a former Wall Street banker, and I have my own perspective as to what happens down there, okay? And I would love to hear your perspective on that. What sort of measures perhaps can be taken, you know, through the international institutions to cut down on that sort of corruption because um, I figure if funds are not being reinvested in Africa, that belongs to Africa, but they're reinvested somewhere else, and it means that it's helping to build other nations. You know, what, what do you... Okay. Um, it's, it's kind of difficult to try and prescribe and try and recover... Uh, the loot once it has left Africa. It's extremely, extremely difficult. The, the, the Swiss bankers will always tell you that they will like to cooperate, but you know, they are, they are kind of cooperation is <coughs> legendary. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's really not forthcoming. Uh, let me give you the example of the Marcoses, for example. Uh, in the Philippines, we were uh, reputed to have uh, amassed a personal fortune of almost 13 billion. And uh, 
the uh, the government of Corizon Aquino, you know, uh, didn't really uh, try as much as possible to try and recover the loot and didn't really uh, uh, get uh, uh, even, uh, you know, a tenth of that, you know, back into the Philippines. Uh, the same thing with uh, Congo, uh, Zaire, when uh, President Mobutu was there. So anyway, uh, to, to me, you know, trying to recover the loot is something like, you know, going on a wild goose chase. Uh, to me, what is more important is to prevent the loot from leaving Africa in the first place. Uh, it's like, you know, trying to rec uh, collect horses after they have, you know, left the stable. Uh, the more important thing for us to do and concentrate right now is to make sure that the stable doors are locked. And, uh, you know, so that the horses won't get away. Uh, right now, there's still a great deal of corruption. Money is still leaving. And we're, we're not focusing on that. We're not, uh, I mean, you know, look at the case of uh, Nigeria, for example, uh, where, uh, you know, an inspector uh, of uh, police, for example, was, you know, found with considerable amount of wealth. The looting is still going on. It's going on uh, in the Congo, uh, for example. And in the Congo, now it is governments. Uh, which are taking part in the rape and the plunder. And I think, uh, I'm not suggesting that you know, we should forget about the loot that is, is gone, but I think uh, we should set our priorities correct, uh, straight, and focus on what's going on in Africa right now and prevent the loot from leaving. Okay, next question. Uh, let's have a question uh, over here, I guess, right in front. Thank you very much. <coughs> My name is Peter Gakuru. I'm a former colleague of John, I think. John, I, as I, I have said before, you are, and as it's been said here, you must be a very strong personality because uh, um, being away from home, being away from home uh, against your will, so to say, is not easy. And uh, in answer to my friend, until you go back home, you are unlikely to be in politics. But to come to the issue that I really want Thank to Thank you. <clears throat> I, I very much liked your observation that uh, maybe your action will result in a, a situation where you will have more people like you making similar statements and a similar position, making similar stance. I hope that is possible. But also, and it's not only for Kenya, but for the whole of Africa, but also it could have a reverse effect. You could end up with the, that corruption fighting back. And when corruption fights back, then you do not accept the so-called outsiders like John, because John came out of the, outside the system. So you will find the same system entrenching itself and therefore being more careful in okay. terms of the boot brings in. All right. The, the, the question I really wanted to raise with you, John, is the following, that um, uh, I read your note that was available on the Internet. It was very good reading, in my opinion. Sir, I have to ask you but, to ask a question now. I want now. to know how far did the whole uh, scam go, really? How far does it go? Does it, is it over yet, or are we still expecting it to continue? That's one thing I wanted to know. The second question I wanted to know is uh, this group of individuals, was it a government committee or are they the so-called Mount Kenya Mafia? 
who are individuals promoting their own interests or are they doing it on behalf of the government? Uh, the third issue I want to raise is... Okay, that's... that's uh, uh, we, I'm sorry, but uh, there are more people who are asking for questions. Question. So we why will. should we believe that uh, the Public Accounts Committee report okay, will really be credible because the Public Accounts Committee already looked at this matter before. Its report was never acted on. So what, what guarantee do we have now, John, that the Public Accounts Committee okay. report will be acted on? Thank you. I... I, I, I very happy to, to answer that uh, Mr. Gakunu's uh, question. Uh, the truth of the matter is, uh, Peter, there is no guarantee. We have to keep on pushing. There's one report that uh, came out, there's another one, and that excuse is now being used in Parliament yesterday that why should we look at this issue since it has already been looked into. The pressure has to be continuous from every side. The problems won't miss, you know, uh, sort of uh, disappear in a puff of smoke. I think it's pressure, whether it's media, civil society, legislature, within the executive, people speaking out and pushing that, whether from inside, from outside. Uh, so, you know, this the corruption fights back. It won't stop. It won't stop fighting back. Uh, if it did, something's very wrong. In fact, my, uh, when, when, when I was in government, um, occasionally, there would be a lot of abusive, um, scurrilous uh, uh, articles written about me in the gutter press, what we call in Kenya the gutter press. And that's when I knew that I'm making a difference. You, know, said it's, you, know, uh, you get threats on the phone, and you, know, and you know, it's working. So this is not uh, uh, a battle that uh, you know, we reach a point where we win and we say, Phew, and now everything's going to be okay. I think it's a battle that's going on everywhere at different levels. I'd like to think that, you know, we've raised the bar in Kenya. We're going to continue raising it. I think I would like to think that the, this PSC report will be treated differently from the last one. That is combined with the Kenya Anti-Corruption Committee's uh, investigations that are ongoing, pressure from the media and civil society. And as far as these scandals, they're ongoing, even now. So I don't think it is something that is going to uh, uh, end um, uh, quickly. Um, um, there's the other issue that you asked, is it a, a, a government uh, committee? Um, one of the issues that I've had to ex explain to, to people uh, is... Uh, who, whenever I referred even in what I've written and I hope what will come out now in, as a result of other inquiries, they was always used the word we, us. And it meant different things at diff depending on who you're with. It was never government. Never government. Group of individuals, mainly from one particular area, who are eating something that everybody else is not eating. It's never government. Yeah. The we was never to us. Our, you know, we was uh, our ethnic group it, to exclusion of others. Uh, our particular. So when I, there, there, there was never a committee. But there is uh, a little group with a very definite sense of itself that is, was aligned along, I believe, uh, ethnic lines with a sense of its own perpetuation, a sense of self-protection, uh, uh, 
that was inimical to some of the very reforms that the government was uh, implementing. Uh, it will be destabilized, uh, it will regroup, it will be destabilized again, but I think the march of democracy is moving forward and uh, uh, getting stronger. Okay, one last question from a gentleman in the back. You, sir, yes. The gentleman who's standing up, yes. My name is John Terry, and um, I have a doc question for Dr. Ayete. If funneling money through uh, governments has become an exercise in futility, what is your suggestion for getting money? How can Western governments get money to the African people who need it the most? Well, um, you know, we, we have to find device ways by which we can bypass these vampire states and get directly to the people. Uh, and uh, one of the ways by which we can do this is to work with civil society organizations that are in Africa. Uh, there are many, many of them. Uh, they are on the ground. They work with the people. Uh, as uh, uh, Marian himself said, uh, I myself went to uh, Nigeria and Ghana uh, working with villagers. We were uh, sort of uh, supplying them directly. Uh, insecticide-treated bed nets and giving them uh, um, anti-malaria drugs. So we were working actually with the village committees on the ground itself. Now, I know this might be a little bit uh, sort of far-fetched for, uh, for Americans. The other alternative is also to make sure, you know, in terms of smart aid to Africa, the other alternative is simply to make sure that Africa, since we, you know, help us reform uh, the institutions that we have in Africa, uh, I have mentioned an independent and free media. It's a very, very critical institution. I've also mentioned an independent judiciary. Uh, there are also other institutions that we need to reform in Africa. Uh, we need an independent central bank. We also need to have an independent electoral commission. And we need to have neutral and professional security forces in Africa. If you give Africa these, Africans themselves will do much of the work and solve many of their problems. Well, unfortunately, my goodness, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for. However, uh, there will be refreshments upstairs, and our guests uh, will join us. So thank you very much, and uh, please thank our guests.